Smarties, we are so excited to continue our conversation with Dr. Sally Shaywitz. She blew our minds last week in episode 151. And if you have not had the opportunity to go back and listen to that episode, please start there because the conversation and really the lecture that she gives us is so wonderful and transitions smoothly into today's content. Today, we continue our conversation with her, and she talks about the importance of evidence-based interventions versus research-based interventions, how parents can improve fluency with their children, why dyslexia is so often missed, how critical accommodations are, and she gives us examples of dyslexic adults who have emerged to be at the top of their field. She also shares why she believes parents and schools should not delay kindergarten, which was particularly interesting for the former preschool teacher in me. We want to make sure that you guys also are able to connect with Dr. Shaywitz and definitely read her book, Overcoming Dyslexia. All that information is in the show notes. So let's get ready for today's second half of our lecture from last week. Let's go back to school. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 152 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Rachel Cap. I'm Stephanie Pitts. Today, we're excited to continue our conversation with Dr. Sally Shaywitz. We heard from so many of you last week who had their minds blown the way that we did in this episode. So Dr. Shaywitz, take it away. So what we did is we said, we have to do something for when the slope for learning is greatest and it's best to identify at risk and provide intervention. So you can't wait. And so what we did is we actually developed a dyslexia screen. And what we did also, we do science and we do advocacy. We don't do distribution. So we gave the dyslexia screen to Pearson publishers we had worked with them on the WISC-5 and had a good relationship. It's a little embarrassing, but they named the screen the Shaywood's Dyslexia Screen. That's not embarrassing. Own it. Yeah. <laughs> it is evidence-based. That's so important. And part of that public law 115-391 defines what a dyslexia screening program should be. It should be evidence-based with proven psychometrics for validity, efficient, low cost, and readily available. And that fits the dyslexia screen. So the goal is to find children most at risk for dyslexia and target them for extra help as early as possible. It's brief. You can use it for universal screening. And you know who was involved in it? It engages the child's teacher who has been trying to teach that child to read. And the teacher completes it on a tablet and identifies a pool of children at risk for dyslexia. And at the end, what appears is this child is at risk for dyslexia or not at risk. It has strong psychometrics, really strong. It's evidence-based, it's extremely efficient and inexpensive. So what the teacher does, she fills out a rating scale 
that emphasizes academic, phonologic, and linguistic performance. And you know what? There are only 10 items for kindergarten, second and third grade, and 12 for first grade. It takes the teacher five to 10 minutes to complete, and you don't have to pull the child away from what they're doing. And it's been very successful. It's being used in many states, here in California, in Palo Alto, for example, and other places. I don't know how many people are familiar with area under the curve, but that's the primary thing for a screening instrument. The values, they range from 0.5, which means, ah, chance accuracy, the one, perfect. And the goal in the law says to have a strong performing screener with AUC in the 0.7 to 0.8 range. The AUC for the Shaywitz dyslexia screen is 0.81 for kindergarten and 0.89 for first grade. So that indicates that the screener is very strong and accurate in separating children at risk for dyslexia from those who are not at risk. And it's so important to do it early because interventions in later grades may decrease or prevent mm -hmm. the gap from widening, but they will not overcome the already existing differences in early grades. And the cost of failing to screen for and diagnose dyslexia is very high. A child who's not identified won't receive evidence-based instruction, continue to struggle, and it's saddest of all will see themselves as a failure and not smart. And they have no knowledge of what his or her difficulty is that has a name, dyslexia, and no self-awareness of why they can't do, they look around and they see their peers doing it. And what happens, they're bullied, they're teased, and they'd rather be sent to the principal's office than read aloud in class. And they see themselves as not meant for school. They drop out and there's a high prevalence of dyslexia in prisons, around 50%. And we with others are actually studying these prisoners now with Dr. Laura Cassidy and others. And so this is so important. I worry sometimes that parents are afraid to have their child identified. 100%. Because they worry, oh, they'll think he or she is stupid. And the thing is, once they're identified, that child knows that he or she is smart. Yes. And smart. And often the parents may have it. And they may have been teased or bullied. So it's very important. And we had a wonderful conference at Yale. Um, in 2015, we called it Slow Reader, Fast Thinker. It takes a dyslexic brain. And we had all dyslexic people, um, an incredible attorney, David Boyes, B-O-I-E-S. I write about him in Overcoming Dyslexia. Incredibly able cardiac surgeon who had been head of the Cleveland Clinic for about 20 years, number one in cardiac, Dr. Toby Cosgrove, someone you all may be familiar with, Ari Emanuel. And Brian Grazer, producer, winner of an Academy Award, and a wonderful economist, Diane Swank. And they all talked about what it was like growing up dyslexic. And can I tell you a secret? They all cried. And now each one of them 
is on the top of their professions. And you can read about them each in overcoming dyslexia in the final chapter called A Person Like That. So it's very important for dyslexic children, their parents, and schools to know you can have a wonderful future. Dyslexic individuals have won Nobel Prizes, have won Pulitzer Prizes, Fritzker Prizes in architecture. It's nothing to be afraid of. And it can be helped, but only if it's identified. And this is really important. The child receives evidence-based instruction. Because what it is, is that there's a lot of programs out there. And how does a teacher know which to pick? Well, what we've learned, it's important. It's not research-based. That doesn't tell you if it works. That tells you, well, there's an idea, there's a concept. It has to be evidence-based. And the evidence has to show that it's children who improve. If the teacher does better, it doesn't show that the child has done better. (laughs) So it becomes very, very important to be able to show that this was used in a study to compare this program to another and that children actually improved. Yes, absolutely. And 20% of children are dyslexic, but only 4% are diagnosed. Isn't that horrible? It really is. It's unethical. Talking to so many people who struggled in school as adults, we talk about, you know, as a kid, just like you said, they cried, you know, school was probably really rough. And We definitely see there's a lot of people who shy away from having their child diagnosed because then they're labeled and then what goes along with that. And one of the things that Rachel and I really, really feel strongly about is it's not a label, it's an understanding. It's like any other diagnosis. Uh Uh-huh. And when you understand what's going on, it doesn't affect the self-esteem. Going in and not knowing feels harder because you feel stupid. And by the time kids get to us in educational therapy, so many of them have such low self-esteem and they don't want to do school anymore because it's hard and they feel dumb. Absolutely. And they get the message that they're not doing enough. Yeah. They're not trying hard enough. Exactly. And the other thing important to bring out is teachers work very hard. Bennett and I spend a good proportion of our time visiting schools but we don't just stay for the morning we stay the day and you learn a lot and what we know is I was fortunate enough to be asked to be on what was the national reading panel that congress mandated in oh I think probably 1998 to look at what is the evidence for what helps in learning to read and then I presented it to congress in 202 I think And what happened was that we reported, and it was a whole wonderful team, that you need alphabetics, phonemic awareness skills, phonics skills, et cetera. And these are important, and these are often taught and must be taught. But it's also, you need to be taught fluency and vocabulary and comprehension, and they're often overlooked or taught 
And I've heard so many teachers say this, and you may have heard it often too. Oh, if there's time. Is there ever time when you have so many people in the class? No, or rarely. So there has to be made time for, rightly so, phonemic awareness and phonics, but also fluency. And fluency, and I go over it in the book, is something a parent can help a child with at home. It's very simple. And dyslexic students often do better in vocabulary and comprehension. And they're important because there's a link from accuracy to comprehension, fluency. So that's very, very important as well. And I talk about this on page 253. And for parents to teach, to help a child improve their fluency, the child has to practice oral reading, reading out loud, maybe for 15 minutes a night, and practice reading, oral reading connected text over and over with their parent. And then the parent provides ongoing feedback as the child reads it again. So reading connected text increases vocabulary and comprehension and background knowledge, which influence comprehension. So it's very, very important. And this method that I've mentioned is called paired reading. It's on pages 254 and 295. And what's nice, you can make it fun. You can say, oh, we're going to have poetry night. Because what do you do with poet poems? You read them out loud. Or you can even do plays. I've found many plays written for children. So it's very, very important. Children need both the decoding and the experience with reading connected text. We've talked about why getting diagnosed is so important for self-esteem and for early intervention. But what do you think the biggest reason besides, you know, the schools, quote unquote, don't want to necessarily screen for it, but why do you think it gets missed so often? Oh, easy. One is the children are could be sweet and smart, and what they have is invisible. That's one thing. And people, again, as I say in overcoming dyslexia often, they connect slow reading and not being smart. They don't understand what dyslexia is, that it can be screened for reliably. And remember, early on, if you screen and identify, the slope for acquiring reading is so good, you can do it faster and faster. So I think the primary reason is everybody, and that includes educators, don't understand dyslexia. They don't understand what it is, that it's an unexpected difficulty, that it affects your ability to connect letters to sounds, and that you can be very smart and be dyslexic. And one other thing I, I want to mention, and I'm sure you both are aware of it, the importance of accommodations. Mm -hmm. You be a slow reader, as I said, but a fast thinker. Accommodations I like to think of as a catalyst. They don't by themselves produce success, but dyslexia robs a person of time, 
and the accommodations return. And there's so many wonderful people who are dyslexic that have made our world better. Writers, scientists, lawyers, people in entertainment. Oh my God, don't get me started. So I think it's really, really important. And if someone were to ask me, what are the three most helpful accommodations? And this is in Overcoming Dyslexia, second edition, pages 438 to 465. Extra time and a quiet separate room for exams. Because remember, their attention is very fragile. And they're using it up so much because they're not reading automatically. Second, some form of a foreign language waiver. And third, as they get older, not when they're in elementary school, to obtain digitized text coupled with text-to-speech for listening. I don't like to do it too early because then it becomes so easy. Practice really makes a difference. I want to make sure that the children are practicing and they can do better. And I think the second edition has what the first edition did, three chapters on college, preparing for college, choosing a college, and being successful in college. And that's important because many students think, well, I'm going to go to college. I'm not going to be dyslexic anymore. And they even delay requesting accommodation. So it's important to know that. And then again, the last chapter of this book describes my favorite people, all dyslexic, all brilliant here. One of them is Dr. Toby Cosgrove. He struggled to read in college. French was, I'm quoting from the book, was almost the end of me. I worked my butt off to earn three D minuses and a D in remedial French. He studied all the time. Standardized testing was a disaster for him. And yet, he's renowned in the field of heart valve repair. And he made cardiac procedures safer and more effective. And he's known for his innovation and creativity. Get this, he has 30 patents for cardiac procedures, but reminders of his dyslexia pop up in this extraordinarily accomplished surgeon. This is on page 511. So as he told me four or five times each day, I would completely stop a patient's heart from beating for one to two hours perform some type of surgical intervention and attempt to restart the heart. In each case, there's a moment of tension while I wait to see if the heart will start beating. As tense as this is, I know I am in control and can deal with any contingency that may arise. So that's the sea of strengths, but he is dyslexic. So after the surgery is completed, it's a different matter. I pick up the telephone to call the patient's family waiting in the lounge. And the nurses break into hysterics as they hear me trying, but unable to pronounce the patient's family name. It's a nonsense word. <laughs> Often, I just can't pronounce those silly words. Hmm. Also reassuring. 
Yeah. Because stuff we always tell families, we're like, these are going to be awesome adults. The students that we work with across the board are going to be awesome adults. They're divergent thinkers. They're creative. And the world will honor that when they find their path. But Mm -hmm. it never goes away, right? They learn to live within it. I'm just going to briefly give you one other example. There was a student at Yale Medical School who couldn't pass the standardized tests you need to graduate. Once he failed, twice, and the boards would not give him extra time. They said, even if we gave you extended time, you would never pass. Nice, aren't they? And so he came to our center, and we diagnosed him brilliant and dyslexic, slow reader. And I stepped in, and I told him, I'm going to be your Jewish mother. <laughs> and you know how they are. So, yes, I do. <laughs> and so what we did is we worked with the Department of Justice, who were wonderful, and got him extended time. He's now a physician, an anesthesiologist. And he recently sent me a letter. Let's see if I can read it. That's in the book. Because it was a letter from a patient, 483. And he sent me this letter, and it came when the book was all ready to be printed. But I said, hold the press. This is so important. (laughs) And it said, Dear Fred, March 27, 2019. Dear Fred, what a wonderment it was to wake up without so much as a headache. You're marvelous. I have heard stories from friends who never met their anesthesiologists. Well, let's just say, I hope you never underestimate the power of your presence and a joke on easing a patient's state of mind. I am most appreciative. Thank you. And I write further that you can't just look at numbers in judging a person. He has now been promoted to a very high level in his hospital. And there's stories like this throughout the last chapter many, many of overcoming dyslexia second edition. So the future is there. We have to, and I'm so glad to be interacting with you, Rachel, and you, Stephanie, because we're a team. Our job is to help educate and spread the knowledge because it's just unethical. The science is there. The evidence is there. And now we have to use it. Wow taking a deep breath to process. Yeah. So in the book, you wrote about something that was really impactful for me with my background as a pre-K teacher. Every year in about March, April, we were having conversations with parents about plans for next year and who was going to go to kindergarten. And, you know, there's so much red shirting that's happening, which is let me hold the kid back so they're boys a lot of the time so they can be bigger, which was always so silly to me. And I was never a proponent of that. But can you talk a little bit about why we shouldn't be holding kids back if they aren't yet mastering reading? Absolutely. That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. And as I stayed in overcoming dyslexia, I strongly recommend not, not delaying kindergarten entry because it will only delay needed help. There have now been studies and actually a natural experiment that I talk about it in overcoming dyslexia, where what they did was there's a cut point. Everybody born 
before this date can enter kindergarten and those boys and girls born after have to wait. So they looked at, well, what happened to those kids? What happened? And they compared them. And when tested later, those in the group that entered kindergarten were reading better, better. The ones that went in earlier were reading better than the delayed entry group. And they were not only better off in reading, but academically and socially and emotionally. And that was true in first grade, too. Staying back doesn't help children in their learning. And it gives them an additional psychological burden. Instruction that fails a child once? <laughs> What's the point of doing it over again? It will fail them again. Keep in mind that if dyslexia is caught early and the child receives effective intervention, she or he can begin to catch up. In contrast, the child who is delayed in receiving such instruction has great difficulty in narrowing the gap, not to mention seeing her or himself as a success in school. So don't wait. Have the child screened. All schools should be using screening and should use an evidence, not research-based, but evidence, proof that it works. I'm proud to say the Shaywitz Dyslexic Screen put out by Pearson Publishers is an example, a prime example of that. And ladies, I have to tell you that the two of you are terrific. <laughs> You're terrific. I really think how fortunate uh, who come to you and who see you who, and who I know you must help tremendously. Stephanie and Rachel. Thank you. Well, I feel like I'm in a college classroom again, Sally. I've been taking notes this whole time. I don't think I've ever done that in any interview we've ever done with anybody. And I'm just so grateful that this book is available and your research and sort of compilation of what we need to know and why is available to our audience. Because I think this is going to hopefully transform some lives and make a tremendous impact. And now I feel like I just want to get out there and advocate for screeners, like that this should be a normal, typical part of what we do because it would impact everything. Yeah. And I was thinking everything. Wow. Maybe I should get this for the practice. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what I was thinking when she was talking about it. We see so many little dudes, as I call them. And, you know, their parents are worried. The kids are struggling. They're upset. They're crying. And, you know, schools keep putting it off, not wanting to test. It's always what I say that suffering is optional for almost everything. Students and families are suffering here. And why are we letting them? When we know better, we should be doing better. Oprah taught us that. Exactly. And that's why I wrote Overcoming Dyslexia, the second edition. And it's very popular. And I hear from all sorts of people. Wow, why didn't I have this earlier? How helpful this is to me. Yeah. So keep in mind, Overcoming Dyslexia, it has my heart and soul and brain in it. And I'm so proud and grateful that the two of you have found it so helpful. 
Oh, it's been wonderful. And I have to say, I listened to it as well. And just so our audience knows that Dr. Shaywitz narrates it. So, oh, so good. I've been sitting there listening to you <laughs> for a lot of hours talk about all this. So it just feels very, yeah, feels very comforting. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate all that you do. Can I ask a fun question? Yes. <laughs> Can we talk about the fact that Bob Dylan is quoted on the back of the book? Isn't that great? <laughs> That's so cool. And he like knows you personally. Well, I read an interesting lot. Yeah. <laughs> and did you see what he said? Sally Shaywitz is an amazing woman. And no one has a better understanding of dyslexia and how it affects young children. Her work in this field is unmatched. Bob Dylan. <laughs> I had no idea what he would write, and I was so proud to know him. I will just say he's a wonderful human being, very caring. And he wrote this, and he won a Nobel Prize in literature, I believe it was. Wow. I'm just so grateful for this book, and we could not endorse this book more. We'll make sure to put all the information that everybody needs in the show notes. Sally, you may be hearing from us again, because we might want to do round two with you. You're the best, Sally. The two of you are the best. Well, we so appreciate it. We hope we can meet in person one day when it's healthy and safe. Oh, that would be wonderful. Before you go, can you say, have a great week, Smarties? Have a great week, Smarties. (laughs) Bye. Thank you so much.